I mentioned in my last post that it would be Luther and Calvin's successors who would be faced with the critics of the Reformation in the dawn of a new age ruled by reason. Reformed theologian Francis Turretin during the 17th century would lead the way in following after the traditions of Calvin. Turretin was a zealous defender of biblical inerrancy. This view believes the Bible to be without error or fault in all its teachings, or at least in the original manuscripts. Turretin maintained that, quote, the prophets did not make mistakes in even the smallest particulars. To say that they did would render doubtful the whole of Scripture. For if once the authenticity of the Scriptures is taken away, how could our faith rest on what remains? And if corruption is admitted in those of lesser importance, why not in others of greater? Nor can we readily believe that God, who dictated and inspired each and every word to these inspired men, would not take care of their entire preservation. End of quote. Turretin argued that it wasn't enough to say that the original manuscripts of Scripture were inerrant, but that the original text of the Old and New Testaments must have come down to us pure and uncorrupted. Turretin's arguments would later become the foundation of Reformed orthodoxy. The Westminster Confession of Faith, established in 1647, retained a portion of Calvin's understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in bearing witness to the Word in the Bible. However, by the time the Confession was composed, Reformed and Lutheran scholasticism had no room for the work of the Spirit. Quote, they did not require the actual movement of God's Spirit to possess revealed teaching, for they already possessed God's univocal word in the words of a perfect self-interpreting text. End of quote. Charles Hodge became the principal of Princeton Theological Seminary in 1851, leading the charge in the ninth century as a proponent of the inerrancy of Scripture. Hodge came from the school of common sense philosophy pioneered by Thomas Reed. Quote, the duty of the Christian theologian is to ascertain, collect, and combine all the facts which God has revealed concerning himself and our relation to him. These facts are all in the Bible. This is true because everything revealed in nature and in the constitution of man concerning God and our relation to him is contained and authenticated in Scripture. It is in this sense that the Bible and the Bible alone is the religion of Protestants. End of quote. The Princeton theology of Hodges combined with his charismatic persona and zeal made him extremely influential in America. Many of Hodges' ideas and teachings would help fuel the modern evangelical movement known as fundamentalism. This movement began largely as a response to the Age of Enlightenment and major advances in science and archaeology. These advances led to the rise of higher biblical criticism, a form of study which investigates the origins of ancient text in an attempt to discover its original meaning within its original historical context. The fundamentalist movement gave a voice to those who felt threatened by this shift in Western culture in fear that if the Bible was proved in any way to contain error, their faith, their religion, and their Bible would crumble to pieces. The fundamentalist movement in itself was a convergence of several streams of Christianity in America. One of these streams, known as evangelicalism, emerged from the revivals of the Great Awakenings in America. Evangelicalism was a blend of pietism, Presbyterianism, and Puritism. According to church historian Randall Balmer, quote, 
evangelicalism picked up the peculiar characteristics from each strain, warm-hearted spirituality from the pietists, doctrinal precisionism from the Presbyterians, and individualistic introspection from the Puritans, end of quote. Another stream of fundamentalism was known as dispensationalism. This view advocates that there are seven distinguished ages in history and a clear distinction between Israel and the church. This view promotes and requires a literal interpretation of Scripture. It believes Christ's return will be in two stages. It holds the view that Jesus will first at any moment rapture the church, which will signal the beginning of a seven-year tribulation ruled by the Antichrist. Nations will come against Israel at the Battle of Armageddon, where Christ will come down with the heavenly armies, slaughtering the unsaved, leaving a river of blood 200 miles long, deep enough to reach a horse's bridle. Jesus will reign on earth for a literal 1,000 years, and then will come judgment. The unsaved will be cast into the lake of fire. At the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, Luther's rants against the Roman Catholic Church included calling her the Whore of Babylon and the Beast. In 1585, a Jesuit priest named Francisco Rabera, in response to Luther's accusations, published a work which placed Matthew 24, Revelation 4-9, through and Daniel 9, 24-27 in the future rather than the first century. Ribera's view never gained momentum and was essentially forgotten until 1826 when it was rediscovered and published by Samuel Maitland, librarian to the Archbishop of Canterbury. It was a man by the name of John Nelson Darby, an influential speaker who would pick up and develop Ribera's end-time views and would gain quite a following. One of these followers was a man named C.I. Schofield, who would later publish Darby's concepts in his mass-produced Schofield Reference Bible. There may be no greater impact on Christianity in America than the Schofield Bible, which was published in 1909. The Schofield Reference Bible was the most popular in its time and became standard in seminaries, largely because it contained a full commentary alongside the text and chain references connecting passages which supported Darby's view of dispensationalism. Threatened by theological liberalism in the early 20th century, these streams began to join together as one voice, speaking out on what they held as the fundamental elements of Christianity. These key elements would eventually culminate in a 12-volume set of essays called The Fundamentals, written in 1910 by various theologians in an effort to defend the Bible and what they viewed as Protestant orthodoxy. Between 1910 and 1915, over 3 million volumes were sold to clergy, laymen, and libraries. Defense of biblical inerrancy was on the move. Here are a few key points within the essays. Quote, Inspiration is not revelation. As Dr. Charles Hodge expressed it, revelation is the act of communicating divine knowledge to the mind, but inspiration is the act of the same spirit controlling those who make that knowledge known to others. End of quote. This definition of inspiration would imply that the spirit somehow controlled the writers in a way which would seem to have bypassed their humanity. Here's another quote. Moses... David, Paul, John were not always and everywhere inspired, for then always and everywhere they would have been infallible and inerrant, which was not the case. They sometimes made mistakes in thought and erred in conduct, but however fallible and errant they may have been as men compassed with infirmity like ourselves, such fallibility or an 
inerrancy was never under any circumstances communicated to their sacred writings. End of quote. This interpretation would seem to insinuate that the immorality of the biblical writers is somehow irrelevant, especially when they were being used under the inspiration of the Spirit. Quote, Is it not with the written word as with the incarnate word? Is Jesus Christ to be regarded as imperfect because his character has never been perfectly reproduced before us? Can he be the incarnate word unless he were absolutely without sin? And by the same token, can the scriptures be the written word unless they were inerrant? End of quote. The logic here is that if Jesus is the word who became flesh, perfect without sin, and God in human form, then the word written on paper must also be perfect, without error, and, well, God. This would suggest that the Bible has been elevated to the status of God and that there can be no division between the two. Yet Jesus seems to contradict this very line of reasoning in the Gospel of John. John five thirty-seven through 40 says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here, Jesus seems to be clear that eternal life is found in the relationship with the Son and not in the pages of a book. The book is immensely valuable in the fact that it points us to the living word, the resurrected Jesus. How could one read the scriptures in search of eternal life and yet reject the one whom they are written about? The words of a book are simply a dead letter, incapable of dwelling within humanity to produce life. Only the living, inerrant, infallible word of God, who is Jesus, the person, not a book, is capable of abiding within his creation. This is the fulfillment of the God who said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Ezekiel 36.27 Here is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is useful. A staple message for advocating the inerrancy of all scripture. In my view, it opens up a problem because if Paul is saying all scripture is God-breathed, and interpreted to mean perfect and without error, then we must apply that to Paul's train of thought here in 2 Timothy. If we back up a few verses here in 2 Timothy, Paul says, quote, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. It was Second Timothy 3, 6-9. The problem? You won't find Janus and Jambres in the Bible. However, you will find Janus and Jambres in extra-biblical literature of the Second Temple period, which includes the book of Janus and Jambres, which Origen believes Paul is quoting from. And you will also find Janus and Jambres mentioned in the Jewish Targums. Why is this a problem? Well, why is Paul assuming that we know what he is talking about? Should our Bible contain the writings from which Paul is using to make his argument? 
Should we include the book of Janus and Jambres as authoritative, since it would seem Paul believes it to be? There are as many as 23 books mentioned by name in our Bible that are not included as part of the canon, and most of them we have no record of. Here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 14-15. You must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Paul is telling Timothy, listen, you have been taught the Scriptures since childhood, and you can trust they are true because you can trust those who taught you. Here's what Paul didn't say. You can trust these things are true because it's written in the Bible. Paul knows that there are interpretive tools which are needed built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And these only come through his teachings, not simply read, but also lived out within a community. Paul also affirms that these scriptures have given Timothy the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by placing our trust in Jesus. Salvation comes to us when we place our faith in Jesus, not simply placing our faith in a sense of security and certainty we may desire from the Bible alone. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, which give us assurance about things we cannot see. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. At the heart of the gospel message lies three simple yet profound words from our Savior Jesus Christ. Come, follow me. We may ask, where are you going? Here lies the mystery. Jesus is the manna from heaven who provides enough for today, no more and no less. If only we had a book that set before us rules and regulations for us to live by, what need would there be for a Savior? No, the righteousness of God was revealed to us apart from the law for good reason. One requires obedience to a set of rules, while the other requires a journey into the unknown mysteries of God. <music>